Hello and welcome back to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This week Marlene and I have a guest in the studio with us, Graham McCormack. Now we've talked to Graham McCormack before, nearly always about his whole system that he's worked out for land tax reform. This is a different topic, so he's put a lot of thought into this and it's about routes to Scottish independence. Fiona and I were both over at Edinburgh at the march um, on the 2nd of September and uh, we bumped into Graham. We were just chatting to people on the march and asking them, well, what do you think is the way forward? So here's a little snippet of some of the responses that we got. So what, what do you think the way forward is going to be? As soon know, as possible. As soon as possible, but I don't know, it looks like referendums, kind of. Well, Labour and Tory both seeming yes. to say, you know, no. But yeah, yeah. I think we just have to keep the pressure up. Yeah, show that we're sensible. See what the turnout, logical see what people. At this general election next mm-hmm. year, uh-huh. actually. Yeah. It's going to be quite important. Yeah. Yeah. Any ideas about the best way forward? It's really hard to say. I, I think one thing that needs to happen is just more support, because as more support builds in the public, it gets harder and harder and so obviously undemocratic to say no. Um, so I, I know a few people who voted no and who are yes now. And one of the things that caused that was Brexit. And I think the the turnover of Prime Ministers when Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, I, I think that was the No, and this one's, not, this one's not much better. No, no. He's kind of maybe better than them, but that's not saying very it's much. It's really not saying no, much. And when you see what we could do here, I think the proportional representation in the yeah. Parliament is yeah. very important. It's what most countries have, most dem- democracies have that. And it, it leads to stable government and it lets people really vote for what they want. Yes, exactly. Our first way forward has to be the Rutherglen uh, and Hamilton West by election. And we have to win that. Yeah. Uh, otherwise they'll make they'll make hay. Yeah. Yeah. We win we win that and then we move forward. Now First Minister in his address in Dundee did say that a majority of uh, independent sporting MPs returned at the next general election will then kick start the negotiations. Not a request. Yeah, they've, they've uh, you know, almost said no without saying no. So we go for the next democratic option, yeah, which is then returning the majority MPs and then we start negotiations. What do you think the way forward is going to be for, for us to get through? Because given all the people, I think the people movement. Do you think there's more people bringing more people around? Yeah, I can't see any, you know, I don't like to say this, but. Demographics plays a big part in it as well. Because if if you look at, I'm 60, my generation upwards, people are not yeah. supportive of independence. But if you look at the younger generation, oh, they, it's they it's are. quite high, and I think that the they will drive it. You Unfortunately, know. I would like it to happen before. Same as me. Yes. 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 I'm a bit older than 60. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to. Graham McCormack, we've had you on the show before and delighted to have you back again. And this time you're going to share with us some of your thoughts on the way forward. That's lovely. My my pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Fiona. Now, if you watch the video version of this podcast over on our IndiePod Extra YouTube channel, you'll notice that Graham had a slide presentation. 
Obviously, we can't reproduce that on an audio podcast, but what I will do is give you a tiny musical clue every time the slide changes. (laughs) And that should be enough because he actually talks through everything that's on the slides. Right, well, hello, folks. As you know, the the SNP is going to consider at its national conference the route map to independence. And in my opinion, it's important that the possible routes are, first of all, discussed and that uh, a decision is made in them. And it's very important that the the members who are making this decision uh, actually know what the legal position is. And so I have taken it upon myself to discuss with party members and and other people what these uh, possible routes might be so that it gives some sort of opinion to the members uh, before they make their their judgment. The SNP invited branches and constituents associations to submit uh, draft resolutions on the potential routes to Scottish independence. Unfortunately, the members have had no legal opinion as to what these routes might be and there has been scant discussion. First of all, what is the law and what is the legal advice? Well, see, we haven't had the legal advice. Public international law is very different from domestic law. It's the law of the victor and it's also uh, the law of national self-interest. Although there are potential sanctions in some aspects of international law, by and large, it's, it's a matter of cajoling, agreeing and finding out what is in the best interest of each individual country. The the hurdles towards um, independence are are, are basically twofold. One is the process of delivering independence, and the second is the substance addressing the fear of risk, which a percentage of our population is is hesitant. They might be sympathetic towards independence, but they're hesitant towards voting for it if they feel their own financial position is going to be materially adversely affected. Now, if we deal with the process first, what we've got to do is we've got to persuade the, the electorate and it's, it's what that electorate should basically be. What decides whether we have a majority vote? Is it a majority of the Scottish MPs? Is it a majority of votes cast? What are the international examples? And what is a majority? I think although the UK system is based on a majority of, of MPs, that's not the system that operates in, in Scotland at our Scottish government elections or our, our local government elections. And I think the international status that we would require to meet uh, would be a a majority of votes cast. That would give uh, the the international community the comfort of knowing that it has been a a democratic majority vote. That's a high bar to meet, but that, I think, is is the one that we uh, we must seek to obtain. As regards persuading the electorate, you know, international examples, they're all over the place. Some have obtained their their majority uh, through referenda. Uh, such as happened in, in Norway. Some have become independent uh, of each other without any referenda, some through the result of war, obviously. But if you look at former Czechoslovakia, they didn't have any referendum at all. It just happened as a result of the kind of votes at the at, uh, Czechoslovakian election, where it wasn't even actually on. The idea of it two independent states wasn't even in the manifestos of the competing political parties. So international examples, they're not definitive in any way of what we do. And what is a majority? Is it a majority 50 plus one? Or are we really saying, you know, we should be kind of nearer the 60%? The sake of of showing a settled will, I think we really need to be plus the 55%. But that's only a view that I have. But the more that we can get, obviously, the better. 
delivering independence. Can the SNP deliver independence? I think Hamza is, is planning to use that as the basis of our election manifesto for the, the next general election. And that largely depends on whether you believe that Scotland can become an independent country without the consent of the UK government, or do you need their consent? If you need their consent, whether from in a legal way or from a practical way, then we're no more than a pressure group. And I think that puts us in an incredibly disadvantaged position because they just say no. But if you believe that we are a sovereign nation and we have the power, the legal power to do so through international law, then that is the way that we should prosecute the, the next general election on the basis that we have the sovereignty to remove ourselves from the United Kingdom. So the options following an election vote, which basically gives a majority vote in favour of independence of the forthcoming general election, would be, first of all, there's a Section 30 agreement, which uh, requires the UK government to give the Scottish Parliament the power to call a referendum. I don't really think that that's a possibility, but we'll, we'll go into that in a wee minute. There's appealing to the international community. There's a unilateral declaration of independence, or there's the dissolution of the union. Now, the Section 30, as I say, it requires the UK government's cooperation, and that would then require a further referendum beyond the majority vote in the general election. And I would think that that would be a, a unnecessary duplication where we, we already have the views of the Scottish people. There's also the question of timescale. How long would it take to negotiate with the UK government to agree such a referendum? And of course, a referendum, if we, we did get into the position where we were granted a referendum, the performance of the Scottish government would come into play in the decisions that were being made by the electors. And given that there has been some criticism of uh, the Scottish government's performance, either deserved or otherwise, in the last wee while, that is potentially another problematic area. We've also got to remember the, the Brexit influence, that having had a referendum where we voted substantially to stay in the EU, but the UK as a whole voted uh, to come out, that the electorate may be less than happy about another referendum, which could be viewed as something along the same lines, or the outlook of it could be on the same lines as what has uh, befallen us with Brexit. So appealing to international community, it's an interesting thing looking at geopolitics over the years. Generally speaking, the international community does not want to get involved in what they consider the internal affairs of another state. This is particularly so when a, a state is viewed as democratic and westernised. So unless Angus Robertson has got in his back pocket, uh, you know, a letter from Emmanuel Macron or uh, from David McAllister in Germany, that uh, they will use all their influence and power internationally so that Scotland can become independent, then I think that that is, is just not a starter at all. The basic premise of international law, whether we like it or not, is international self-interest, and that uh, to appeal to other countries is probably not a, a particularly worthwhile event, given that they will, they will not get involved in the decisions within a, an existing state unless it was actually going to significantly materially endanger their well-being. There's also our friends abroad. I mean, we have a wide diaspora. However, unlike potentially the, the Americans that had an influence on the eventual independence of Ireland, the Scottish diaspora have been less forthright and organised. So I don't really think that that is an option either. 
And there's also the UK government's reaction to the, an appeal to the international community. They basically are holding all the cards just now because they've got the diplomatic missions and all the rest of it because these are reserved matters. So I don't think that that's a proposition that we can really look at seriously. Unilateral Declaration of Independence. Now, of course, the most famous one was uh, America, but America was a colony of the UK, and we are not a colony. There are those who say that we have been colonised in culture and all the rest of it, and there is obviously some practical application to that, but officially we are not a colony. We were part of the colonisers as part of the UK, and of course, so many of the UK politicians refer to this union being a voluntary union. So, you know, in no way from a, a legal point of view, as far as I can see, could we be classed as a colony. And it's colonies that have unilateral declarations of independence. There are various international examples over the years. Everyone seems to have its own wee nuance or difference. The one that I remember going way back to when I was a kid was, of course, Rhodesia. And that had certain unfortunate connotations, to say the very least, because of the apartheid system, which was going to operate there and the support that Rhodesia had from South Africa during that period of time. Again, I don't think that that is something that we could really contemplate. The other thing is that uh, a UK government reaction to that would be that the UK government would be the continuing state in international law. And as a result, it would have the, all the rights and the responsibilities of that continuing state. And again, it would hold an awful lot of the cards which it could use against us. And of course, if we were declaring our independence, then basically that would mean that we would be more or less stating that we weren't entitled to a share in these assets or the responsibilities indeed of the United Kingdom and everything that, that follows therefrom. So again, I don't think that that would be a particularly helpful thing to consider. Again, the international reaction would be, I dare say, there would be some states which would be relatively supportive of Scotland declaring its independence. But organisations such as the EU, which markets itself as a rules-based system, would be largely averse initially, at least to the idea of a Scottish Declaration of Independence. We're not in the same position as the Catalans, who, because of their written constitution in Spain, uh, which states that Spain is basically indivisible, that there could be some justification for the view that the EU took when they had the referendum there, albeit we could also criticise the EU because of the failure to condemn the jackpot response of the uh, Spanish government. But again, the EU wasn't going to get involved in that. And would the Scots vote for UDI? You know, the idea of, of UDI is something which is, is quite dramatic. And I think the Scots would be very slow to think in terms of that this was a, an appropriate designation for what we have to achieve. The other thing is that it would be pretty uncertain and it would be messy because we would be going, setting ourselves adrift without any call on the, the shared institutions of the United Kingdom. And these would all have to be set up very, very quickly. And as a result of that, between that and also trying to build up an international relationship formally would make things extremely messy. And I, I don't think that that is on the table either. The fourth one is dissolution of the union. There are basically two options here. One is to negotiate after a positive majority vote, and one is to negotiate before a positive majority vote. And if we take the first one first, the dissolution of the union, what that basically is, is based on international law. The United Kingdom was formed by the Treaty of Union. And within that right was the right to have Scottish MPs sit at Westminster. 
That is the right which was conferred on them. So if the Scottish MPs withdrew from Westminster, then that, in effect, is the dissolution of the Union under international law. That would then require these Scottish MPs to form a provisional government in Scotland. In addition to that, there would be the, the reaction of England, Wales and Northern Ireland. Now, I'm not calling it the former UK or the, the rest of the UK, our UK, because it's not. The UK would cease to exist, but there would be two partners. One would be Scotland and the other would be England, Wales and Northern Ireland, NOANI for short. There would also be the monarch's role here, what Charles's response would be to this dissolution. And although he's probably on current forum, probably realises that if Scotland becomes independent within a fairly short period of time, we may well be deciding on an alternative head of state. But if he wanted any hope of he and his successors being head of state of an independent Scotland, then he would be well advised to tell Inwane to cooperate in the dissolution of the Union. In international law, dissolution of the Union is a perfectly valid thing to do. There have been various examples of it over the many centuries. Probably the, the one that we think of most is the dissolution of the former state of Czechoslovakia, which was carried out incredibly smoothly and indeed without any referenda in either the Czech Republic or Slovakia. They just drifted apart very, very quickly as a result of an election in, in Czechoslovakia. And within about six months, they had basically decided the, the main elements of how they would dissolve. And it is quite interesting, despite the fact that they agreed all these things, there are still certain things which are still working through all these years later. Everyone is different, but dissolution of the Union is certainly something which is very possible. And in fact, the Vienna Convention, there's been two or three Vienna Conventions, but they actually even allow for how assets and responsibilities can be split in the event of a dissolution and in the event of a dissolution where there is no agreement. There is provision in international law. Now, given that the, the Treaty of Union was uh, signed many centuries ago, the convention doesn't actually apply legally. The, the Vienna conventions are supposed to only apply to agreements which were set up after the Vienna convention. So strictly speaking, although Britain is a signatory to them, they wouldn't specifically apply. But basically, the Vienna convention codified most of the, the customary and accepted international law, which had applied from international agreements going away, way back to classical times even. So it's a body of law which is not the same as domestic law. It's largely law either of the victor or um, of national self-interest and built up over many centuries. Negotiating after a positive majority vote. As I said at the convention in Dundee to the SNP, why do we get a majority of votes, but the UK government either refuses to negotiate or just says no? What do we do? It's very difficult to negotiate with somebody that's not prepared to negotiate. And what could we possibly negotiate if they're not prepared to negotiate? It might be that they might change their tune. And if so, you know, we then have to negotiate on the division of assets and responsibilities and also what we do with the common institutions, Bank of England, DVLA, Diplomatic Corps, all that kind of stuff. And then again, how long would it take to agree it? It may well be that we're not dealing with nice Mr Cameron who agreed in the Edinburgh Agreement of a, a transition period. So we don't know how long a transition period, if any, would be and how obstructive or difficult or otherwise in one government would be.
And also the fact that Inouani would want to be the continuing state under international law so that it could retain its prestigious position in NATO, in the UN, the Security Council and all the other sort of international agreements in which it is party to. So that would be something which would motivate them and that would obviously have to be something within the agreement and that might actually be a bit of a sticking point, we don't know. So what if the UK government doesn't agree, as I say, What do we do? What do we do if they refuse to negotiate and we've already got a a, a positive majority vote? At that stage, we've got to decide whether we just dissolve anyway. The timescale in that case is as long as a piece of string. There's also the international reaction to what we are doing at that stage. If we're talking about a year after the, the majority vote or two years or two and a half, three years or whatever, politics and geopolitics may well have changed economics of the of countries etc may have changed so i think it is a very dangerous thing to consider negotiating after a positive vote because i think we we may well end up in some sort of cul-de-sac where we cannot move one way or another this is negotiating before a positive majority vote And this is the thing I think that we should really be considering. So what that means is that the SNP and any other party that supports uh, independence who's standing at the general election would be transparent for the electors and our opponents and basically say what we are looking for in negotiating with the UK government and the opposition before a general election. So they know exactly what we're talking about. The Scottish government's role in this, because they are a product of the the Westminster system, the Scottish government does not have the power to uh, dissolve the union. It's our MPs who have the power to dissolve the union because they are there as a result of the Treaty of Union. However, there is a role, obviously a substantial role for the Scottish government here because there are a number of people that would assess whether to vote for the dissolution of union based on risk to themselves and their families, the material risk. So it really is important that the Scottish government ensures that the policies it pursues in the next 12 to 15 months are truly national policies and that they appeal to the widest possible audience in the Scottish electorate and they use the powers that they've got as I've mentioned before proper land reform they could bring that in very quickly to actually increase their their budget significantly to basically ensure that there was more than sufficient funds in the control of the Scottish government and not through HMRC to make sure that none of our population were materially disadvantaged by the fact of our dissolution. There would be a need to set up an independence delivery group and this would basically be a group of experts who are committed to independence. They wouldn't necessarily have to be members of the SNP but an awful lot of heavy lifting has already been done on currency, banking and all these kind of things. Constitution, we have a a constitution more or less ready you know to get us over the line to, to prosecute these very, very quickly and have them in the public domain, as well as the, the delivery group would also be responsible for basically controlling what we give the media and ensuring that the information which is going out reach such a momentum that people wouldn't think that it might happen, but that it will happen. And basically that they would be inspired with confidence to vote for the dissolution at the forthcoming general election. Well, will the UK government and or their opposition negotiate? Because it would be important that it wouldn't just be the UK government that would have to negotiate or be invited to negotiate, but also the official opposition. Now, I fully expect that the initial response would be, well, we are not negotiating anything. 
But of course, as time wore on, as the election drew closer and closer, and uh, even if the polls showed something like, you know, 40% for dissolution and 60% against, that would have quite a significant effect on the reaction of the unionists as to how they deal with that. Because if we were going to be leaving the day after the election on a majority vote, then that's it, you know. So we're giving them the opportunity to negotiate with us before the election so that things can be agreed always subject to there being a majority of people voting for independent supporting parties at the general election. So it gives them an opportunity to do that. They won't want that, of course, and also it makes it very difficult for Labour and the Tories because they're then fighting on two fronts. They're fighting each other to become the, the government of the United Kingdom or whatever it's going to be called after that. And they're also fighting to try and save a union. So from an electoral point of view, that makes it really, really difficult for them. And of course, that is something that would benefit us. There's also the reaction of unionists in Scotland. How do they respond to that? Do they get into bed with the Tories and the, and Labour? Do they try and, I don't know, be obstructive? We don't know. But anyway, that's something that we would need to obviously consider. There would be effects, as I say, of opinion polls. If there was a momentum built up and the fear of risk was dissipated and, and people were inspired, if the opinion polls showed that there was a, a possibility that we would win this, the reaction again of the, the unionists and particularly the political parties down south would, I think, show a marked change of emphasis. And we may well find, for example, that in the weeks before the general election, that would be a number of ships leaving Coalport, etc., with certain things that we would be quite happy to see the back of anyway before the election. But a dissolution with agreement is what we were looking for because we basically want to encourage the UK government and opposition to negotiate with us before the election. And that would be good for everybody because we'd know exactly where we were. But as I say, you know, you can have a dissolution without agreement. And the beauty of that is, rather than UDI, is because we're not a colony. Under international law, if there is no agreement, until such time as both parties can agree the detail, or an overall plan. One former partner cannot unilaterally make decisions on what was formerly a shared institution or shared common property of the former United Kingdom. So if we take something like the Bank of England, which is a national institution, a UK national institution, it would not be in the gift of the Chancellor of the Exchequer of ENWA to instruct the Governor of the Bank of England to do something without the agreement of the Finance Minister in Scotland. Now, they might try and do that, but of course, all these decisions to put them into effect have got to be done by civil servants. And if the Provisional Scottish Government included in its Declaratory Act of Dissolution that these civil servants if they carried out any operations which were considered to be materially adverse to the interests of Scotland, then as a result of that, they could be personally liable both in civil law and also in criminal law. Now, a lot of them might never want to come to Scotland or anything like that, you know, after we are independent. But having said that, many of them are Scottish. Many of them have property interests in Scotland. And also, it's not a particularly nice thing to have hanging over your head for the rest of your life, basically, if you do the dirty in Scotland, because you will always have that, and that, that restricts your movement, basically, um, to a certain extent, for the, the rest of your days. So, without an agreement, it largely suspends the operation of the former United Kingdom. So, it then forces the other side to basically get around the table and sort things out. But because we still 
are entitled to what's called a joint and several right and liability for the assets and liabilities of the and responsibilities of the former United Kingdom until an agreement is set. That puts us in an incredibly powerful position because although we might just be one-eighth the population of the UK, in these negotiations, you know, we are equal partners in respect of what is or what is not agreed. So that's where we're at. And of course, international reaction with a dissolution would be that they would be anxious for these things to be resolved from membership of NATO, UN, etc., etc. So it would put tremendous pressure on Enwani's government to come to the table and get these things sorted out. Otherwise, every decision that is made cannot be unilateral. It's got to be made with the consent of Enwani, and it's got to be agreed with the consent of Scotland too. Independence Delivery Group. The composition of this, as I say, would need to be established with people who are experts. Now, there have been a host of opinions on currency and finance and banking, goodness knows what else. And really, for the next um, 14 to 15 months, these experts would basically need to get around the table and agree, look, we have got to do something to get us over the line. And uh, we might have our own pet views on modern monetary theory or whatever, but let's just get things over the line and there are things that we, we can agree to there. We would require a, a, a declaratory act to be drafted by legal draftsmen, and that could be done beforehand and ready to be enacted the day after the general election. It would need to involve fundraising to ensure that there were the funds to maintain the delivery group over the period of 14 months or whatever. And we would probably want the composition to exclude most civil servants because we don't want them to feel that they've got a conflict of interest between the UK government and the independence movement during the period before the dissolution took place. We'd also want the delivery group to have been controlled basically of, of information which is going to the media uh, so that that is done in our terms. And also how it would advise the Scottish government and how it could buy the votes. Because let's face it, an election, that's what it's all about. It's buying votes. That's what political parties do. And we need to know how we could buy the votes of the extra votes that we require to have a comfortable majority. Say we need to create a, a climate of expectation and inevitability. It wouldn't be what if Scotland can become independent or it will be will become independent so that people believe that that's going to happen. Also, as I've mentioned, address the fear of individuals, the fear of risk. And part and parcel of that would be to guarantee public service employment and contracts, such as the people that work for BA Systems and obviously our, our civil servants too, and how the new civil service department in Scotland would be created. We would also have to undermine the British state and the civil service. And there's perfectly legal ways that you can do that. And we, we should be open about that because you cannot create a new Scottish state without undermining the British state. It's just impossible. <laughs> As I say, in currency and banking, mortgages, the police, we need to know, you know, what the reaction of the chief constable will be on dissolution. I've actually submitted to the Police Board of Scotland a freedom of information request to establish what questions were asked of the, the applicants on the constitutional position and to include whether things such as UDI, dissolution, etc., what the reaction of the police constable would be to that, and I am waiting a reply. We've also got to turn the previous negatives into positives, whether that's currency, defence, because there's positive messages there to be put, and also pensions, which is, a, is an incredibly important thing, both 
private pensions and the effect of dissolution in private pensions, but also the opportunity to improve the, the state basic pension. And also there's there's issues about the borders and export markets and how these should be affected. But because borders is a to a certain extent a reserved matter on dissolution without an agreement, it would mean the border would have to basically stay open. That would be, you know, obviously to the benefit of both sides. And of course, that is what's going to happen at the end of the day. We are going to have an open border between the two former states. I finish this off with just a resolution that was submitted to the SNP conference committee. Unfortunately, it's not appeared on the draft agenda albeit we are trying to get the the committee to consider it either by way of an amendment to the ones which they have put on and we'll see how it goes. But basically it, it just says that we declare that Scotland is a sovereign country. We ask the Scottish government to ensure that it uses the powers it has got so that dissolution does not prejudice the basic financial security of our citizens. We commit all our members to prosecute the dissolution of the United Kingdom at the forthcoming election and we basically say that what would happen is that on a positive vote the day after the election, the SNP MPs and inviting others from other parties too to withdraw from Westminster, declare the dissolution of the Union, create a provisional government of Scotland, remove the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom Supreme Court and advise the United Nations and the international community that the kingdom is resolved and that um, we will adhere to the Vienna Convention on the Succession of States in Respect of State Property and declare that Scotland will take responsibility on an equitable basis for the rights and obligations of the former United Kingdom. That's it. Thank you. Wow. Quite easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fascinating talk. So much to think about there. A couple of things that jumped straight into my mind. The bit where you say we would be equal partners in the UK's assets and obligations. Is that not us agreeing to take on trillions of pounds of UK debt? Well, <laughs> I suppose to, to some extent that depends on whether you believe in modern monetary theory or not. <laughs> but uh, no, it doesn't because basically um, in terms of the Vienna Convention, it says that the debt should be equitable the responsibilities and the rights should be equitable. So the division, whether it's assets, responsibilities would be equitable. And equitable doesn't mean equal. It means fair. Now, as I've said before, you know, the convention does not strictly apply because it was promulgated long after the Treaty of Union. But it basically restates what was the customary law of international treaties prior to that being basically codified. The other thing to remember, too, is, you know, Enwani will be absolutely desperate to be classed as a continuing state. So the price of that, subject to whatever agreement is, is eventually struck, would be that, you know, they would take their share of what the liabilities and the, uh, the assets would be. So I, I don't find that as a problem at all. They say all these things eventually will need to be agreed somewhere, resolved somewhere. But if we use the fallback position of the Vienna Convention, then we have a, an equitable liability and not an equal liability. Great, thank you. That really um, that was a useful clarification, I think. I mean, the other thing that just occurs to me is do we have time to do all this if we've got to set up groups to construct our offer, if you like? If the next general election is going to be in 15 months, that seems like an awful lot for us to do from a standing start. Well, it is a lot to do. 
But if we're really serious, somebody will shout out, when do you want independence? And we shout out now. Well, you know, if we mean that, we've got to do it. But, you know, in times of, of crisis or in times of, of opportunity with small windows, you do it and you can do it. It's a matter of, of, of basically having the focus on doing it. And as I say, so much of the heavy lifting has been done. Not everything has to be done before we dissolve, but as long as we have that framework in place and we also have the funding arrangements so that we have the source of public funding in place, then these are the main things to, to have. Because, I mean, let's face it, I think under the, the Edinburgh Agreement, our transition period was going to be something like, was it 18 months? 18 months isn't much longer than 14 or 15 months. So, you know, these things can be put in place. I don't really have a worry about that. I've always found that there is a way through things that they can be done. Sometimes it's actually better not acquiring a bit of what you were formerly part of. Rather, you're better doing it, you know, um, from, from the start. And we have examples of that. For example, in the security issue, I mean, I have heard it said by, by, by experts that, you know, if Scotland wants to set up its only own security system, uh, the best examples of that are the Baltic states. It's not what Britain has just now. And of course, with technology, etc., having moved on tremendously, there is so much that can be done without worrying about the issue of, of timescales. We will have to concentrate the mines. There'll be a lot of mines that will have to be concentrated, but you can concentrate them for 12 to 15 months and then, you know, you're independent. And that's what we all profess to say that we want. Not that, oh, yes, we want to be independent, but not now. And I actually think this is the best opportunity we have ever had. But we've got to focus on it and put all our efforts into it. And we can do it because I really do despair that we will get another opportunity like this, you know, in the next 10, 15, 20 years. We will not get cooperation from a UK government, whether it's Tory or Labour. We've got to actually have a threat and a sanction and say, if you do not negotiate with us, well, we're off. And that's what we've got to do. But in order to do that, we've got to take that element of risk, personal risk, that people might well feel and the nervousness they might well feel that, you know, they are materially adversely affected or potentially by this. And that's why the Scottish government's got to use the powers it's got just now in order to create the funds and the wealth which it can do. Why it's been so timorous, I don't know. But that's what it's got to do, you know, and, and create the funds so that HMRC can't get their hands on this. We can then move with confidence. But, you know, this is not going to be done by some gentleman's agreement. Independence, some, you've got to take it. And um, we are dealing with basically political thugs in Westminster. Points I wanted to just raise. One is about the Vienna Convention. So I noticed that you said it has provision there for dividing up not just the liabilities, but the assets. So yes, UK has got a lot of liabilities, but the UK has huge assets. So it would be both. So that's reassuring. But I just wondered, I mean, you said it was drawn up 1985, I think. What prompted it? What did it emerge from? I think basically what happened was that the UN... Um, obviously, the UN was developed after the, the Second World War, and it gradually wanted to build up some structure, not just to itself, but also to regulate or attempt to regulate the position when certain events happened internationally, where states broke up. There, there was some form of structure to that. I don't know why it was specifically. I mean, I think the, the first Vienna Convention, I think, was late 60s, early 70s. But of course, it takes a number of years to be ratified until they've got a certain number of countries that, that ratify these things. You know, that that's the kind of time it took. It may well be that um, it was to 
just respond to, you know, certain countries which had split. And of course, there was quite a potential movement of, of countries that were possibly former colonies, etc., or, you know, countries that had been colonies and then they split again. I mean, there's just been so many, when you think about so many different events and how um, countries have been created and, you know, countries have dissolved or split up, I think they just wanted to give some sort of structure to that. It's been ratified by a considerable number of countries and states, including the UK, so it is basically the kind of, shall we say, the settled international law or legal framework. Good. I mean, we know that the United Kingdom has flouted international law itself. I mean, the Caicos Islands, I think, is the, the most recent example where they just ignored the will there of the people. You know, international law is breached by a number of states when it suits them. But uh, I think if you are dealing with the, the actual dissolution of the UK itself, you know, that's a, a different kettle of fish altogether. That's really helpful. I, I might go and read up a bit about the Vienna Convention, you know, as you do. Uh, but So the other thing I just wanted to, to ask a wee bit more about, so it was towards the end of your presentation there, and you were talking about the Scottish government can use the powers that it has already to ready the, the situation or the landscape, as it were, of what we might be moving into. So you're someone that we've always talked to before about land tax and land reforming that. So that would presumably be something that Scottish government can do. But so are, are there other things that you, you know, specific things that you'd like to see them doing to kind of, you know, lay the ground as it were? That comment that I've made is, is based on the, the land reform and the, you know, introducing land as the, the principal source of public funding, which beyond any shadow of a doubt will raise far more money than all the other forms of taxation, which um, either the devolved administration has power over or indeed uh, the United Kingdom government has power over. And so uh, in the run up to the dissolution, the, the Scottish government could introduce my form of annual ground rent or a similar form to that, and they could do that really, really quickly. It's really a very simple thing to set up because, again, most of the institutions and the elements of it are already in place. So that could be done. And that then is the source of funding which goes direct to Revenue Scotland and doesn't go anywhere near HMRC. It benefits virtually everybody financially. But in addition to that, Section 80i of the, the Scotland Act. And I may say just in passing that basically Section 80i refers to taxation on transactions involving an interest in land. Now, transactions doesn't just mean buying and selling. A transaction can just be the delivery of your rates notice or your council tax notice. That's a transaction under Scots law. Or making a will is a transaction, albeit it's just one person that signs it. So that's it. So it's, it's not necessarily sales and purchases. So in addition to that, it's possible just now for the Scottish government to tax the heritable property of our energy suppliers. Now, they've got pipes and cables going all over the country, thousands upon thousands of miles of these. And because that is a heritable asset under Scots law, they could actually charge them for that just now. So there's another wee thing that they could do, or a pretty big thing, in fact. I think I worked out, in theory, £32 per metre length would raise enough money so that everybody in this country, whether they were a private individual or a company, wouldn't have to pay energy if that money was refunded by the Scottish Government to consumers, uh, private consumers and also commercial consumers. It's things like that that we've got to think about and do. The other side of it is Section 28, 
And that's a really interesting one because we have heard uh, some of our ministers, etc., say we don't have the power to set up a universal basic income without the consent of the UK government. Well, that is wrong. What it says is that 28 basically uh, allows the Scottish government, the Scottish Parliament, to create benefits as long as they are not paid for by the Consolidated Fund, which is HMRC, or the National Insurance Fund, pensions and things of that nature. So a universal basic income is not a pension. Under my proposals, it wouldn't be funded by any UK government funding at all. It would be funded by the model of annual ground rent that I'm suggesting. So we can do these things now and we can set them up very quickly. I mean, Scottish government has a national insurance number for every resident in Scotland who's registered with national insurance. So we've got that. It just needs the political will to do it. Yeah. And we can do these things. Although given that we've not successfully managed to get through legislation like a simple deposit return scheme or the um, GRA paperwork, you know, without Alistair Jack's head exploding and coming down on us like a ton of bricks. I can just imagine his face if we tell him we're going to tax every metre of oil <laughs> pipeline. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be at all surprised if um, Alistair Jack, you know, became, I was going to say, the sixth country to end up on the moon. He might self-propel himself into that. But, I mean, the position is that, you know, if, if the UK government challenged these things, such as, you know, as, as bringing in the, the model of annual ground rent or the you know, the universal citizen's income for or basic income for everybody, say, £200 a week. That's actually grist to our mill. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, unlike the GRA and things like that, which are important, but, I mean, they, they actually affect a relatively small section of our population. This is affecting everybody. And particularly in a time when, you know, people and a lot of people are really suffering. To think that they could have another £200 in their hand every week you know, it would make the difference between existence and living. And, and it's these things. So, you know, that, that that would propel us towards independence anyway if they tried to stop it. I don't know. I mean, I, I just I just find that, you know, we, we seem to be a bit timorous. And I've always found in, in, in my professional life, you know, if you challenge authority, it's amazing how they back off, <laughs> you know. So the, the general election and, and there's a majority of votes um, cast for independent supporting candidate that that kind of like sets this all in motion so one of the options was if there's no negotiation or well i think maybe it was either way that the scottish mps would withdraw from westminster but basically it'll only be the snp mps i mean i'm, I'm sure that others independent supporting parties will get votes but they won't get seats not under first past the post so it'll be the snp taking themselves out now at the moment that would still leave what six or seven MPs after the general election might be more than that. So then you've got a bit of a rump of Scottish MPs still hanging in there in Westminster. What happens at, at that point? Well, they can do what they like, to be quite honest, <laughs> where they are. But, I mean, we're, we're moving on. Once the UK is dissolved, it's dissolved. And, you know, they can, they can do whatever they like and they can say whatever they like. But when there is a, a majority vote in favour... And um, that manifests itself in the, the new provisional government of Scotland, which um, immediately enacts the, the Declaratory Act. Now, the Declaratory Act can take different forms, but it would be a relatively simple act. One option it would have would be basically to say that it declares that the, the, the Scottish Parliament in Holyrood is now sovereign. It could say that and transfer these powers because it's the, the, the Scottish MPs would have the power to basically assign their rights 
to the, the, the Scottish Parliament. But that's the way it's got to be done. Scottish Parliament can't do that itself because it is a creation of Westminster. The Scottish MPs are not a creation of Westminster. They are a, a creation of the Treaty of Union. That's really the point. But that, that would be one way it could be done. Another way it could be done would be for the provisional government to say, no, we will retain the powers meantime until we hold a, a general election at such and such a time, six months, nine months, something like that. Obviously, there would be a, a coming together of civic Scotland. You know, we might call it a convention or all the rest of it. But the convention actually gets into play once the deed is done and we move forward with that. Crucial to this is the independence delivery unit. People with expertise in the different functions that I've said, bringing all this information together. So what we're doing is we're front loading the transition period before the general election and not after it. That is extremely powerful. And also it takes it out of the orbit of the Westminster system, because as I say, the civil servants would not be involved in this prior to the general election, but it would be people with expertise that know what they're doing just as well as civil servants know what they're doing about how you, you transition and you set up all these sort of frameworks and institutions so they're ready to go the day after to the general election. And the, the other thing to remember is that, of course, there'll be a lot that won't be set up in time, but because under dissolution, we are an equal partner. Enwani cannot decide, you know, just to do things unilaterally for these things because the UK has ceased to exist. So it's got to agree on a, an item by item term, you know, what uh, can be done, whether, you know, it's, it's, it's propping up the pound, because uh, we will share the pound for a period of time, obviously, or what we our commitments for defence and overseas, etc., that kind of thing. These are things that would need to be decided, agreed equally until we get down to basically finalising the agreement of how we divide our, our assets and liabilities, et cetera, et cetera. That's it. Wow. Um, wow. I, mean, I, I can see the attraction of giving people a vote when the negotiation has been done, you know, because then you know what you're voting for. How much support you're going to get from that remains to be seen, but um, fascinating, fascinating. Smashing. The one thing I will say in conclusion, if you're somebody like me at my age, and maybe maybe a bit younger. If you believe in Scottish independence, what is the best legacy you can give your children, your grandchildren? Is it to leave them a thousand pounds, or is it to contribute a thousand pounds to deliver independence and the opportunities that they will have in the, the the years and decades to come afterwards? And I think that's what we've got to start focusing on. Um, it's not a hobby. This is a real mission, and we've got to be evangelists for that and we can do it if we believe it and I think we've just got to focus completely on this for the next 12 to 15 months. Fantastic right thank you so much. Thanks then bye. Bye. Plenty of food for thought there thanks again to, to Graham for coming in and talking us through it. We've been keeping track of how many different routes to independence people are coming up with and it's safe to say there's no shortage of different options that people are thinking about which one ends up being the route we take still remains to be seen but for now thank you very much for listening and we will catch you next time bye now bye